0: sometimes think there are things that Jesus says that inspire, that encourage, but yet at times I may not completely understand what he's talking about, so I accept it, but maybe don't live quite fully into it, or don't know how to. And for me, one of those has been this phrase that was read this morning, where Jesus says, I came that they may have life And have it abundantly. So there you have it. Jesus says He came that they, meaning you and I, and all who choose will have life abundantly. Some translations will put it, life to the fullest, a rich and satisfying life, life in all of its fullness, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. All of these translations and variations communicate the same message, the message that when we choose to follow Jesus and live in relationship with Him, there is this expectation or this promise that it'll be rich, it'll be satisfying, it'll be life in all of its fullness. Now maybe the dissonance for me is I've been around church people long enough to realize that sometimes it doesn't seem that way for some. And even in my own life, sometimes it hasn't seemed that way for me. There is this Cognitive dissonance between what Jesus says and actually how we live or what we feel is part of our own spiritual journey, what Jesus promises us. In other words, how do you find your life today? Do you find it rich and satisfying? Do you find that you're living it to the fullest? Do you find that maybe there is this sense of abundance about it that Jesus talks about? Quite honestly, I used to shy away from this verse when I would read it because I would think, first of all, prosperity gospel. What I would think was that being promised this was a life of material success, free from hardship and suffering, but somehow that didn't square with life. And I realized that wasn't always the case. I realized now that maybe what Jesus was saying wasn't what I was hearing. So I would write it off as a nice saying, kind of a warm spiritual fuzzy, but I did not think of it as something as realistic for the real world, but the problem was not on jesus 's end, the problem was on my end, because I would be hearing these words through the grid of someone who lived in a fairly prosperous country with many advantages, a country that was built on sort of self help paradigms, achievement and success. and what I realized was that i couldn 't at that time comprehend what more Jesus could offer me than I couldn 't already get on my own through a self help book or maybe some book on success or personal success an achievement, but then I began to realize through my own personal experience and even some of my own personal disruptions in life, Jesus wasn't talking about self-help. Jesus was talking about something much deeper, something deeper beyond just what I could do on the outside or the external or some techniques that I could employ. He was talking about something that went straight to the heart that transformed how I viewed life and how I see life and how I approach life. What I came to realize is that Jesus wasn't talking about life on my own terms, in my own way, creating a full life in the way I understood that and then my words sprinkle a little Jesus glitter on it to make it all seem spiritual. Jesus was actually saying that to be in relationship with Him And to live in the way of Jesus, which is the way of the kingdom of God, is a way to live a life that is abundant, a life that is rich, satisfying in all of its fullness. And this abundant life is not dependent upon circumstances, it's not dependent upon achievements, it's not even dependent upon what I own or what I possess. It's a different kind of life, this abundant life. It's a life energized by the grace of God, a life that is well-lived because it lives in faithfulness to Jesus and it trusts that Jesus knows what He is talking about and that in the way He shows us to live, it will work. And it does bring abundance to our life. It does bring abundance to our world. And when I say that, I'm referencing things like the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus talks about how to live and how to be in the world and how to be present in the world, and we'll get to that in a few moments. A term that's often used around this is eternal life. Now, I think when we hear eternal life, it's one that we get tripped up on because most likely when we hear it, we think immediately of the hereafter, heaven, the kind of life one lives after they die. And in truth, that's part of it. That's part of our experience. That's part of the good news. But that is not all of it. Eternal life is not just what we experience after we die. Eternal life is what we experience when we are alive and before we die. It's not an either-or, it's kind of a both-and. Eternal life is a life that lives in this interactive relationship with God, with the eternal. It's a life that is not just about where we will be, but it's also about who we will become as we are alive on earth. It invites us to ask this question. I may be alive physically, but am I alive spiritually in my soul? It's a word that communicates vitality. It's a word that communicates vigor. It's a life that holds out the possibility of flourishing and fruitfulness as we live in this interactive relationship with God. Or to put it another way, it's not dying before we die. It's living with a soul that's alive. It's living with a sense of awareness that God is present in my life, interacting with me daily, supplying what I need, Supplying what I need when I am not at my best. Supplying what I need when I'm not living well. It's that possibility that out of this relationship there will come this abundance, this satisfaction, this living life to the fullest. I've seen this sign or this meme, this phrase that makes the rounds every now and then. And some days I really get it, and I think it makes a lot of sense. But it says this, I would like to live a life in which I don't always have to take a vacation from. I'm paraphrasing. Now, vacations are good, don't get me wrong. I'm not putting a lot of guilt on you for taking vacations. I take them too. Can't wait to get out of town sometimes. But I think the point is well made. Am I living a life that I'm not always trying to escape from? Am I living a life that within the dailiness of life, satisfaction and fullness can be found in all of its complexities? and all of its nuances. A couple weeks ago, I had a meeting up at Mount Airy. So after the meeting, Linda and I, we did some walking around downtown Mount Airy. One of the stores we browsed was the Life is Good store. They have one of their retail stores, you know, that sells the Life is Good merchandise, hats, t-shirts, hoodies. What I found ironic was that the store was closing down, going out of business, That how ironic that a store with the theme, Life is Good, was now not doing so good. And they had to close the doors and have a going-out-of-business sale. Some bad marketing on that part. The company's still doing well. Unfortunately, this one particular store wasn't. But for me, it was somewhat metaphorical. It reminded me of many people's lives that at some point had ended up going bankrupt or had to sell out because life was no longer going any good. They had tried to find abundance in something that wasn't sustainable, something outside of themselves, something shaky, and life for them was no longer open for business. And they just didn't know where else to find it. I suspect that part of this might have to do with what robs us of the abundant life. Again, the language of this text. In verse 10, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, and I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Pretty direct words by Jesus. Jesus. Scholars will say that over the years they've explored what John exactly meant. Some have suggested that John's referring to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the religious teachers of the day, that all the heavy legalistic burdens they placed on folks, they stole life from them. Some, though, have suggested that it's, in the language of the Scriptures, that it's the Satan or the devil, or if you will, that there is this pervasive evil. There is systems and structures that seek to disrupt life in such dramatic fashion that it feels as if it's robbing us of life, destroying us, maybe even killing our spirits and souls. It's kind of this negative force that can be so subtle that it can sometimes even be described as good or light or even normal, but yet it costs us or robs us us of any vitality or fullness. Now, I've given thought to this, and I just want to spend the last few moments kind of unpacking that just a bit. I've given thought to this understanding of how our souls may be robbed of joy and vitality. And for me, I identified four forces which seem pervasive in people's life and society that maybe could be explored in a deeper way. And maybe over the next four weeks, I'll explore each one of these. The first force I identified robbing us of joy and vitality is that of anger. It's probably no news to anyone that we live probably in an angry and polarized culture at present. And in fact, the anger boils over into road rage or violence or disruption of relationships. Um, The other day I was driving down the bypass that goes around High Point heading toward home, and a car exited on, and as it exited on, it cut right in front of another car. And I thought, "Ah, that's a a little bit risky there. You probably should have slowed down and got behind it, but it just sped up, cut right in front of one car, and just kept on going. Well, lo and behold, I saw the car behind it all of a sudden pour out exhaust, which means he just went, or he or she went into turbo speed, and they followed that car all the way down the bypass, and all I could think was, this is not going to end well. And they did this slow down, speed up, slow down, speed up. You could see the brake lights go on, brake lights go off, brake lights go on, and they did that, and they must have been going 90 miles an hour by the time they reached top speed. There is this anger within our society that we are on short fuses. And sometimes it sends us in this occasional social media rant, it raises our blood pressure, and the energy from our anger then spills over into areas of our lives and leaks out of our lives in this form of cynicism and sarcasm. And I'm actually so concerned about it that I've begun to wonder if we haven't reached epidemic status in our culture and our inability. Now, I'm not saying anger is wrong. I get angry, you get angry. I know Paul knew we would get angry because that's why he said, don't let the sun go down on your anger. He knew what happened. Jesus knew what happened. My concern is we are not metabolizing and processing our anger in a way that is healthy. And it is killing us both figuratively and literally. And I think it robs us of a lot of life. It robs us of a lot of joy and in some cases it robs people of life literally. The second force is anxiety. Now I know that we all have anxiety at times. I'm not saying that it's wrong when we experience it, nor am I saying that people of faith will never have anxious moments. I have them. You know it's a part of the journey of life. My concern is the kind of chronic anxiousness that takes over our life and causes us to catastrophize every moment and experience to the point that we lose sight of the goodness of life. The word anxiety literally comes from a word that means to choke. And much of our life is being choked off by anxiety that runs rampant in our soul, and we feel helpless to do anything about it. And again, I think Jesus speaks to this, because He's the one that said, don't worry about tomorrow. Enough. Today has enough trouble of its own. Paul talked about anxiousness. I'm not saying these things make us bad or make us spiritually defective. I'm saying they're real, but I'm saying they also have the tendency to rob us of that fullness of life if we're not aware of it. And I guess what I see is I see so many people forget that we have that possibility of abundance in a rich and satisfying life in relationship with Jesus because we don't know what to do with these when they come our way. The third force, and I think it's very real in our society and for people, the third force is addiction. Now, this may seem like an odd one to include, but I do think it's real, and it's a real possibility for everyone. Now, when we think of addiction, we may think of alcohol, we may think of drugs, we may think of tobacco, but we can also be addicted to materialism. We can also be addicted to overwork. Some folks can be addicted to rage in such a way that out-of-control anger gives them a kind of rush, it gives them a kind of high. There's actually a word for it. We have such a thing as rageaholics in our society. And quite simply, addictions are any substance or any process we use to engage to help numb the pain and anxiousness in our life. It could be just mindless TV. It could be just as they say, retail therapy. Whatever it is to help numb the pain and anxiousness and we do it over a period of time and we if we get away from it, we have feelings of withdrawal, it becomes an addiction. Some of it may be inappropriate, much of it is. Some of it may be socially acceptable, like workaholism. But our addictions rob us of the abundant life, and life that is rich and satisfying. And the last is this, apathy. Now, my standard funny preacher line is, I one day preached a sermon on apathy to my congregation, but they didn't really care, so there you go. (laughs) Thank you. But here's the thing. I simply recognize that this one because I find that once life seems to have dissipated from one's soul, all that is left is apathy. Again, a little bit of word information here, which is helpful. The word apathy comes from two words. The root word of it comes from a word that is called pathos, P-A-T-H-O-S, which means feeling. When you put the word A, etym- etymologically, the word A means Without. So someone who is apathetic is simply without feeling. When one experiences apathy, they just don't care anymore. They move through life with a kind of numbness and listlessness. They, they languish, they don't flourish. It's a kind of flatlining of the soul and nothing moves them. They're not moved to tears, they're not moved to compassion, they're not even moved to action. Life becomes just one boring moment after another and it's almost as if it just doesn't matter anymore. And so they're apathetic. It's at this point that Jesus' words become real talk, because Jesus says this, the thief or the thieves come only to steal and kill and destroy. And let's think about that for a moment. Maybe all the stealing, maybe all the killing, maybe all the destroying that we see going on in our world is a result of humanity not being able to deal with its anger, its anxiousness, its addictions, and its apathy. And Jesus adds this, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly and life to the full. In other words, I think Jesus is saying, but it doesn't have to be this way. It can be another way. And so my question to end would be for me and for all of us as we think about Jesus' words. So what is it that robs you of life? What is it that is robbing you of the abundance that Jesus offers? What is it that is robbing you of living life to the fullest in its most richest, deepest, vital, vigorous way? And what will we do with it? How do we let go of it? And how do we move away from it and into the life that Jesus offers? I think it's possible. I've seen it in people's lives. In some ways, I've seen it in my life. I have a long ways to go. And maybe this list that I have doesn't work for you. Maybe you have other things that start with different letters that rob you. But I think what Jesus was saying is there is stuff that robs us of life. And it's real. But it doesn't have to be the thing that rules our lives. So what is it for us? And how can we turn to Jesus in very simple terms and live the richness and abundance that He offers?